Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to this panel for the Gulf South. I think you're going to be treated to quite a conversation over the next hour of exceptional scholars who have stories to tell, colorful and exciting writers that put all these, put our history and various events into a a very lively and interesting set of stories. I'd like to briefly introduce everyone that's on this Gulf South panel for the Mississippi Book Festival. I'll introduce myself first. My name is Scott Noggle. I'm a member of the board of the book festival and also of the executive committee. And I am the co-owner of Pass Christian Books and Cat Island Coffee House in Pass Christian, Mississippi. And I'll introduce our five panelists here. First, I'll start with Deanne Stevens. She's the author of the Mississippi Gulf Coast Seafood Industry. She's a professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi and she is a repeat author. She has an earlier wonderful book entitled The Plague Among the Magnolias, the 1878 Yellow Fever Epidemic in Mississippi. In addition to Deanne, we have Chris McLaughlin, who wrote the wonderful book, Mississippi Barking. Wonderful story. And, and when you read it and hear her speak, it's, it's just uh, uh, it's heartbreaking in many ways. But it's a beautifully beautifully written narrative. Thank you. Mike Bunn is with us. Mike is the author of The 14th Colony, The Forgotten Story of the Gulf South During America's Revolutionary Era. Mike is an author and historian. He's worked with several cultural heritage organizations in the Southeast. He serves as director of historic Blakely State Park in Spanish Fort, Alabama. He's the author of several books, He's also a member of the board of directors of the Alabama Historical Association. We also are fortunate to have Christian Penan with us. Christian wrote Colonial Mississippi, along with his co-author, Charles Weeks. Christian is an associate professor of history at Mississippi College. His research and teaching focuses on race, slavery, and the law in American colonial borderlands. Our last panelist is Tori Bush. She collaborated with Richard Goodman in putting together an exceptional anthology of environmental writing about the Gulf South. It includes fiction and nonfiction, well-researched or long-lost newspaper articles, all these elements relevant to uh, the environment here in the Gulf South. So welcome to everybody. And... um, I think a good way to start, and I want this to be as much a discussion as uh, firing back questions and answers. Deanne, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book and uh, the uh, context of the, the Mississippi Gulf Coast seafood industry? Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much, Scott. And it's an honor to be here with such an illustrious panel. I appreciate it. Um, The book that I wrote looks at the various groups of people who have uh, worked in and shaped and created the Mississippi seafood industry. 
Um, I live in Biloxi, Mississippi, so you are constantly hearing about, if not enjoying on the coast, the wonderful seafood. And I had for years listened to people who worked on the boats or who owned small processing companies or even ice houses talk about the life of their forefathers and foremothers who had worked in the industry. And as a social historian, I really began thinking about those stories and collecting them. Now, my particular work, I believe it or not, some of you will, I started collecting these stories about 20 years ago. And many of the people whom I was fortunate enough to speak to have since passed on. And I was just so honored to have their stories about when they either went out on their ships and harvested the oysters or they sained and trawled for the shrimp or whatever they did. So it just seemed to me that during COVID, it was the time when I could spend to put these stories together and to begin working on this. And it was something that I felt compelled to do, not only because it's a rich history of the seafood industry, all the way from Bay St. Louis over to Pascagoula, but I felt honor bound to tell the stories for the families and for the people whom I had interviewed, that there, this, this history that I had here in my office it simply needed to be told. And this was the impetus that um, I used to write the book. And that was a perfect overview of your book. And I'm going to use that to segue in asking Christian a two-pronged question. If Christian, if you could give us an overview of colonial Mississippi, a borrowed land, then also maybe comment on how important the, that early availability of seafood and the natural resources resources of the Gulf War to the early years uh, here on uh, several centuries ago in the Gulf South. Yes, sure. <clears throat> Thank you for, for having me. Thanks for organizing all of this. Um, and the book is sort of uh, it's part of the Heritage of Mississippi series, sort of directed at a general audience. And so Charles and I called, you know, all the existing literature to kind of come up with a composite of what we so far know from our historians and some primary research on our part um, about the region. And the book essentially is trying to chronicle the almost impossible um, story that, that is behind what we now know geographically as the state of Mississippi. Um, so we're having to engage the French, the Spanish, the English, the Americans, and we're having to do so at the same time. So for example, while parts of Mississippi were English, other parts were still Spanish. Um, so to kind of come up with a coherent storyline that, that's digestible and that makes sense easily without having to rely on too much um, scholarship and to be too specifically um, academic was, was, a, was a challenge, I think, for us. Um, and then in terms of seafood, I, I must confess that we do not necessarily focus on seafood as much. However, um, if you read the story of particularly the early region in itself, I mean, most people uh, survived on either game and or seafood um, because just from research, I just know when people tried to settle the area of the coast in New Orleans, you know, the, they had the, the crops that they brought from Europe rotting in the field. Uh, because of the sand and the humidity and the weather, they couldn't establish uh, 
you know, their wheat and cereal based diets as they know. So through trade and through their own harvesting fishing techniques, they had to survive with the local modalities, a lot of which was seafood. Mike, I'd like to ask you next to give uh, an overview of your uh, book, The 14th, 14th Colony, The Forgotten Story of the Gulf South During America's Revolution Era. But I also then want to ask a second question to you. It's a point that Christian made that I think if you would speak to. Christian speaks to history. You deal with history, both of you. And, and Mike, would you speak to the point that you've written an eminently readable story from start to finish, you're telling a story. I'm not going to use the word novel because we're dealing with facts and we're dealing with uh, uh, people in history. But, and I, I might even come back to Christian and ask this question later, how did you turn it into such a readable, interesting narrative with living, breathing people basing it all on history, research, facts? If you could respond after you give an overview of your, of your book. Thanks, Thanks Scott. Um, my book is essentially about the British colony of West Florida, which embraced uh, most of what we know now as the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Northwest Florida. It was a British colony from 1763 until it was overtaken by the Spanish during the Revolutionary War. And uh, we're familiar with the fact on the Gulf Coast, at least, that there is a colonial heritage, a pretty rich colonial heritage in the region. But I found that so many people, myself included, when I started the research, was a little bit hazy about how those time periods were divided um, and what that meant to say it was under British dominion versus Spanish when all that occurred and why. And the more I got into the topic um, of, of colonial history in general on the Gulf Coast, the more I realized that there was a story unto itself. On, on just, just talking about the British uh, dominion on, on the Gulf Coast. And so what the book is, is a simple overview history for the general reader, um, explaining what was the colony of British West Florida, who was there, why, why did they go there, what were they doing, and how did it ultimately transition to uh, Spanish uh, ownership. So I, I've just tried to make it a narrative history uh, that it explores a, a forgotten or overlooked chapter of, of the Gulf Coast, really rich history. And um, as far as how do I make it a, a compelling story, um, that's a difficult question to answer. All I can say is that when I research and I gather what I, all the facts that I have, and I, I, I try any topic I write, I try to literally canvas everything that's been written on it if I can. Now, sometimes there's some topics you can't do that. But for this, I could. And what I want to do is lay out all the facts. And then I realized that you had so many compelling people and stories. And I wanted to interject a little bit of life into it to make it a real human story because that's what it was. And when you're familiar enough with material, um, sometimes you have the luxury of doing that. It's a history book, but it's a history book that has a a story and a narrative and lead characters and pivotal events. And, and I'm proud that you'd say that it's, it's readable because uh, that's what I strive to do. I, I don't write anything that is not, that I don't think is for the general reader. If I'm writing for another academic, I see that as kind of useless. I, I want to write so that someone who knows nothing about the topic can pick it up and learn something and have a new appreciation of history. And so that's the way I approach everything. And I'm really honored that you'd say that, that I've achieved that goal. You, you succeeded. It's very readable. 
Um, and you touched a bit on research, Tori. I know you're a, a PhD candidate for Louisiana State University, and I know a large part of the candidacy and work is research, digging out the facts, annotation. I thought one of the many strong points of your anthology, outside of the point that there's so much in it, fiction, nonfiction, newspapers, letters, is the fact that you had to dig all this stuff out, research, and you give a brief introduction to each piece you use. After you tell us a little bit about your book, The Gulf South, an anthology of environmental writing, could you talk a bit about the research and digging all these things out of some very, what must have been long forgotten, dark, crypt-like places where you found some of this information? Um, thanks so much, Scott. Um, yeah, and thanks so much to the Mississippi Book Festival for having me. Um, I'm really happy to talk about this book. I co-edited with um, Richard Goodman. Um, so the Gulf South is an anthology of environmental writing approximately from 1900, even though we have a couple texts from the very late 1800s um, to what we say is today, but really what that means is like 2018 when we sort of finished our publication process and we're submitting our manuscript, maybe 2019. Um, so it's about a hundred years of thinking about my interest particularly is thinking about how the language that we use around a place, the stories that we tell, the rhetoric that we use, um, how that sort of shapes our relationship to the environment. But also I was really interested, uh, Scott, thanks so much for pointing this out, thinking about it across genres. So we have certainly like a number of um, great uh, fiction. We have some uh, Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones, which was um, one of her earlier novels, which is amazing. Um, we have um, just a number of nonfiction texts because there's such a wealth of it, especially more and more today. Um, so, you know, we have, uh, Deanna, I was thinking about you. Um, we have a text um, by uh, Diane Wilson called An Unreasonable Woman. And she's a sort of like a fisherwoman in Texas, sort of dealing with a very large um, petrochemical facility and sort of the narrative of that. And then we also have journalism, of course. Um, and then we also have a graphic text, which I was really excited to include. We also have poetry. So um, while we certainly don't have sort of the historical text that I think Christian and Mike, you guys are certainly digging into. One thing I felt very um, strongly about is that we have texts that sort of still think very deeply about sort of our colonial history and how that impacts our environmental reality today. Um, so we have 43 authors from across the Gulf South, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. Um, we definitely tried to look specifically, we um, we're in contact with about 60 scientists and um, science writers, um, environmentalists, different people sort of across the region and ask them sort of what were the texts that were seminal and they're thinking about their work. And so that started our original bibliography. And from that, um, I think we had about 300 texts and from that we added even more. So I think we had at one point a bibliography of more than 400 texts that we sort of called down and curated, trying to pick and choose. The real work of an anthology is picking and choosing the text to include because there are always so many great texts and we have such a wealth of both writerly history as well as environmental history in our region. Um, 
And so really thinking about including diverse topics from, you know, I'm here in New Orleans, so we think a lot about land loss, but also, um, you know, thinking about toxic pollution is certainly one of the major topics. Um, in the back, we sort of adjust. In the beginning, we um, include all the texts chronologically, but in the very back, we have sort of a suggested alternate way of reading through it through a thematic order and sort of thinking about it through environmental justice and activism, thinking about it through weather systems, thinking about it through controlling and polluting ecologies, inundations, so that could be floods or rising seas, and then sort of animal and plant entanglements is another category. So it's a very wide-ranging um, anthology that hopefully is both something that can be used really well in the classroom, but hopefully for anybody who's really interested in the natural history and current sort of environmental reality of the Gulf South. I think it's very readable across the board. It is very readable. You say classroom. That's a good thing. I flinched a little bit, but I can tell you any bookstore that puts this in the front of their bookstore will continually sell copies of it because of its scope and its breadth. Yeah. I had wandered into your bookstore and saw it there and I wanted to thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Chris. Uh, tell us about Mississippi Barking. And, and when I said it was a painful story, I didn't mean in, in a sense of it's a painful story wrapped in beautiful prose. Let me rephrase. It was clear to me when I read it that you worked very, very hard to tell a story, but to put the reader in the place, in the space where you were and describe the surroundings. So if you would take us back to the beginning, tell us about Mississippi Barking and um, how it came to be, and then how you evolved as a writer through the process. Well, thanks, Scott. I, um, I, I feel really honored to be here. I'm definitely the freshman in this class, and um, everyone's got a, a kind of uh, professorial background, and I've got a bedroom with a cat on the bed. So um, anyway, uh, Mississippi Barking, uh, the, the effort started simply with a phone call from my sister in um, mid-September of 2005 when she was in New Orleans breaking down doors to get animals out of homes where animals had, um, where people had had to leave their animals behind. And um, that phone call led to an email, which led to um, another email to um, people Uh, one woman in Mississippi, one woman in Florida, and a New York Fire Department lieutenant and his wife. Uh, Jerry had been at Ground Zero, and he was there that day working for the Fire Department of New York. And he had since retired because of what what had happened that day. And as he was driving to New Orleans, he stumbled upon past Christiane, Mississippi. And my focus became Mississippi because it seemingly was not the focus of pretty much anyone else. It wasn't the focus of the media. It wasn't the focus of our political leaders. It wasn't the focus of people that wanted to help um, with relief and rescue work. And I ended up, I ended up going down to Mississippi uh, literally in an SUV, a borrowed SUV with a, big box of milk bones and some canned Starbucks and a first aid kit. 
that was in a sleeping bag. And, um, and I went to the Waveland Animal Shelter. And I would imagine that most of you know that Mississippi was, was Katrina and uh, Waveland was the epicenter of, of that storm just east of the Pearl River. And I found it really interesting to, I was reading a magazine today and it was talking about how towns uh, and city, well, really towns um, south of New Orleans were literally wiped away and that this was far worse than, than Katrina. And I thought that's exactly what happened to the Mississippi Gulf Coast in 2005. And Missis- you know, Waveland lost 87% of their, of their buildings their uh, their town hall was steps in a flagpole. So Mississippi Barking tells the story of really ordinary citizens who weren't certified or professionals and flocked to New Orleans and the Gulf Coast to to help the animals that were left behind either forcibly or um, unwittingly um, or strays and their offspring or shelters that were abandoned uh, because of the storm. So my book tells the story of, you know, just a group of everyday people, myself included, who went down there and and tried to affect some change. The, the difference with my story is 16 years later, my organization is still doing this every mm-hmm. two weeks. And we take animals out of the state of Mississippi every two weeks. And with Ida, we are helping out uh, taking um, some felines out of Folsom, Louisiana. So we're still very much on the front lines and um, we're still very much a disaster response organization because the disaster is pet overpopulation and, uh, and apathy in, in the deep south when it comes to companion animals, which is one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book to to highlight that, to let people know that anyone can make a difference in this world. Anyone that cares about something can make a difference, but also that Mississippi matters and um, Mississippi cannot be forgotten in this uh, in this crisis that happened, you know, 16 years ago. So. I kind of take it personally, even though I'm a Yankee, and um, I, I take I I consider Mississippi a second home, and I I take it uh, very personally and feel like a voice, an advocate for the state and for the animals and the people. Chris, I'm going to come back to you after we go through another series of questions or two because you didn't respond on how did you learn to write so beautifully. Oh, but I'm, yeah. no, no, I'm going to come back to okay, you. Okay. <laughs> okay. I want to ask Christian, what was so intriguing to me, anytime I read a book that goes so far back in history, and I make the assumption that the, the, the records and the source materials have got to be scarce and that you, you have to dig them out of some very unique places. Can you tell us or explain for us where you may have found or how you researched and uh, some of the, the unique places potentially that you found some things that were relevant to your to your book and your story? Yes, uh, happily. So um, I think you're alluding to, like we start with the Arnando de Soto expedition, really in terms of like source material and stuff. And that was thankfully mostly published uh, in terms of you have access to it, most of it online. 
Um, and then Charles, my co-author, is an excellent uh, Spanish speaker and reader. And so we kind of collaborated on that. Uh, for my other book, I had gone to Spain, um, to Seville, to to go and for the records there when it came to Mississippi. And then we utilized the, uh, the courthouse in Natchez, which up until very recently, thankfully, um, was housing the, the Spanish court records for Natchez just in a metal cabinet. Mm-hmm. And everybody could kind of go in there and um, look at them just in like regular court records. And people weren't <laughs> really paying too much attention. Um, and some things did walk away, as it turns out. Um, but uh, they have now moved to the Natchez Stroke uh, Foundation, so that's really good. Um, but so we kind of um, relied, for the most part, um, on secondary sources. So we, we used, again, we tried to call the literature as much as we could um, for, for the process of writing this book. Um, but we do have significant... Um, independent primary source research in here. Uh, but thankfully, uh, Charles in particular has an exquisite knowledge of the digital um, sources at the Mississippi Historical, uh, of the, I'm sorry, MDAH, Department of Archives and History. So a lot of the Spanish stuff and the French stuff had been photography, of, there's photographs of these things on microfilm from the 19-teens and 1920s. And he sort of has been going through those through his entire life in Mississippi, I think. Uh, so he has a very good knowledge of these materials. And I could chip in with some stuff that I had collected in Seville. Um, and as I went to places like Washington and to Baton Rouge to LSU and to Texas uh, and places sort of around the Southeast, uh, trying to just piece together what we could. Um, but I mean, for DeSoto, that's really not neither of our forte. <laughs> so that, that was largely secondary literature. And then as we got to the French settling Mississippi in the 16, or the, really the river region in the 1690s and early 18th century, that's when we really started hitting some primary sources. Deanne, I don't know if your research took you to Spain or not. <laughs> one of the I things wish. That, <laughs> one of the things that struck me about your book is there within the, the seafood industry and the history of the coast, there's such a almost consistent every other decade or so an influx of new culture. As we sit here today, we know uh, during the 70s and 80s, we have many, many join us from uh, Vietnam, the Vietnamese. But as you had to tell the story of the seafood industry, you're often dealing with cultures and immigrants who come to us and don't either have or keep good written records. Going back as far even, uh, even though you're, you're focused uh, for the large part within the 20th century, there's an African-American, there's a Native American, uh, there's a heavy Italian, not all keep good written records. How did you pull the story or, or piece it together when there wasn't always written records and maybe you had to rely on oral histories? Um, This is a really interesting, as my colleagues are sharing, um, you know, as as historians and writers, we also become quite good detectives. And court cases, I used several court cases in my research because, um, as you state, I, I look at a wave after wave of immigrants. I start with uh, the people who lived here on the coast. And then I go from there all the way up to modern times with 
the Hispanic communities that are coming in and settling on the coast and working in the seafood industry. And the workers whom I, um, I deal with in the book oftentimes were marginalized in society. And as you point out, oftentimes simply didn't have the, um, the tools or the resources to record their stories, but their stories do appear and you have to kind of kind of slide in backwards in many instances, uh, particularly in newspapers that are recording people's reaction, local reactions, and in court cases. Um, I found in my research that oftentimes arrest records were very detailed in um, describing where the person was from, what was the fine, to whom was the person released. And that was instrumental in my research. And many of the local churches, particularly Catholic churches, also kept very good records that I could use. Um, Many of the immigrants coming in were of the Catholic faith, and uh, local churches up and down the coast often recorded the stories, particularly uh, with baptisms and occasionally marriages. I didn't get to Spain, but I did get to Baltimore. And Baltimore has a wonderful, wonderful collection with the Polish community. And again, church records were instrumental and newspapers were instrumental. And like many of my colleagues, there simply was not books on this subject. There were books around the subject. There um, a lot of them dealt with uh, perhaps one um, There were some books dealing with very ethnicities in Mississippi, but not specifically those that worked in the seafood industry. So it it really was some of those non-traditional sources that it's fun to use, but that we often use as historians when we're putting this story together. Um, I was really pleased with the, the outcome. The book is part of coming out of LSU, uh, the Third Coast series. And, you know, it, it, it nestles in beautifully with all of our books and telling, and I think you all are bringing it up so well, this part of Mississippi and often Mississippi in general, it's just that land in between. And this is one of the ways I think that we're really highlighting uh, our, the history of the region and the rich fabric of the region that has created it what it is today. Mike, when you were researching, did you come across anything that surprised you in your work? What's evident in in your book, 14th Colony, The Forgotten Story of Gulf South During America's Revolutionary Era. I'm going to keep saying the book titles as many times as I can, by the way, doing this. You have a very even level approach. You present the story, the facts, and uh, melded them very well into an exceptionally readable narrative. But as you were researching, did you come across anything that either startled you or you thought, oh, I don't know if I can put that in a book? I came across some things that surprised me. For those who are interested in colonial history, like Christian, and I'm enjoying reading his book right now, I found that there are some basic assumptions we have about the time period that I was researching, that when you got into it and you really looked at it, it didn't really play out the way that, that the, the, the quick overview histories of the United States may suggest. You know, there's some basics, like uh, 
the fact that the British, the colony of British West Florida is usually, if it's mentioned at all, is is mentioned as some sort of inconsequential fringe outpost that was just allowed to languish and the British weren't real serious about it. But they they endeavored to create a true colony and they devoted a lot of resources to do such things as divert the course of the Mississippi River into colony uh, for one. Uh, and and you, you find other things about the colony's uh, relationship to what was happening in the American Revolution. And when you look at the research, there's there's not a lot written about British West Florida in the, in the, in the big picture when you're talking about colonial America. And, and like I said, it, it, if it is mentioned, it's usually some vague summary that that's uh, overgeneralization. Uh, and, and one of the biggest ones being that they didn't participate in the revolution because they were all loyalists. Uh, down here. And, and when you get into the real records, you find out they weren't loyal to anything but themselves, to be honest. They were some some uh, people that were pursuing what was in their best interest more than any political ideology for or against revolution. So little tidbits like that, once I got into the records, made me realize that the, the truth of the story is more interesting than the general uh, assumptions that we might have about uh, this this forgotten outpost that uh, we just don't know that much about. And when you don't know that much about something, sometimes it's real easy to just gloss over its really complex history. And so one of the things I wanted to do in the book is give it its own identity, tell its real story, help people understand what life was like here. And by here, I mean the Gulf Coast and certainly Mississippi, Alabama, that region. Uh, it needed its own definition, it needed its own colonial story. It had one, and, and I hope I've helped tell it and helped rescue it from obscurity through that. I think you've done it very, very well. Very compelling. Tori, I want to ask, uh, you, and I'm doing this by memory. I'm not picking up the book and looking, but I, if I recall, one of the first items that you had in your book was uh, Lafcadio O'Hearn and Lost Island and the subsequent uh, fictionalization or novel that he wrote, Cheetah. Could you comment on the role of fiction, since you have both nonfiction and fiction in the Gulf South, an anthology of environmental writing? You have both. Can you comment on what does fiction bring to fleshing out or telling the history or story of a time? Is there value in fiction in doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that I... I was really interested in, I feel like along genres, we tend to sort of use certain language. Um, there was a book a couple years ago that came out by Scott McFarlane. He's from the UK and it was called The Lost Words. I don't know if you heard about it. Um, and basically he f- realized that as the dictionary was adding new words like, you know, internet or, you know, computer, they were also taking out words. And oftentimes those words were things like bluebell or turn, things that were sort of of the natural world, very specific words. And I think one thing, especially thinking about like Lafcadio O'Hearn and sort of his, what I see as like a really interesting text that lives right alongside it, Catherine Cole's um, newspaper piece, also at the same place, also about Last Island, both about that hurricane. One is nonfiction, one is fiction. And I think looking at both of them, what we can do is we can sort of excavate the language that we don't really see as often these days. There's such a richness to it, the way they both describe it. Um, And while I think um, one thing that fiction can do that maybe in a way serves a better purpose for this than nonfiction is I think fiction can sort of 
reimagine or rethink sort of how we're approaching it. Whereas nonfiction, there's sort of an indebtedness right to the truth, to, to whatever that person might consider to be the truth. So I think fiction sort of gives us an opportunity to rethink things think, looking forward, to look at language and reconsider our relationship to it and how that relationship dictates our environment. Um, and Lafke O'Hearn, I think, does that in a really interesting way by taking this um, uh, hurricane that really decimated Last Island and sort of rethinking it, reimagining it into this fictional tale. I include sort of the first part, which is really descriptive and lush, but the second part is the story about a little girl who gets sort of plucked out of the water um, from this, you know, destructive hurricane, and then sort of how she comes to find her history. Um, so I think in that way, fiction sort of allows us to hopefully reimagine things. Chris, I want to come back to you and ask you uh reference to Mississippi Barking. Am I correct? This is your first book? It is. Walk us through. It couldn't have been easy uh, thinking about how to put this and get it down in, in, in words. And it, it's very, very polished. It puts the reader right in many times just awful places uh, in sense of uh, the devastation and what you had to go through. But I want to go back to the original question. I think you may have dodged before when I was complimenting and said that you write very well. Tell us about how you took a very personal story and how you learned to write. In other words, tell it in a way that draws in other people to the point where you can't put it down. You have to keep reading. How did you learn to write? Uh, trial and error, persistence. And um, towards the very end, I did take a writing class, a writing workshop, a manuscript workshop with the author, Pam Houston, who had just recently written, <clears throat> excuse me, a memoir by the name of Deep Creek. And I was so impressed and, and really captivated by that story and her writing I wanted to emulate that in some way, but so working with her, it, it's, it's really amazing because I literally spent four days with her and five other women. And what I learned with that very small group of people over very, a very you know short period of time was how to finish this book, how to, how to write this, not only write the book was, the book was largely written, but, how to shift things and and uh, extrapolate on some things, and I think it's I think it's really important to know that when I was down on the Gulf Coast after Katrina, I was writing emails back to a group of people that were financially supporting saving uh, these animals. So I had fifty pages of emails that I had written over the course of really the first year, primarily the first year, that had, you know, conversations and people I met and places I had gone and things I had done. So I didn't have to rely a lot on memory uh, to recreate scenes or dialogue. I had the written record. And when I was writing those emails, it wasn't my ever my intent that I was going to uh, put it to a book but as time went on, I realized that 
it was really a story that had to be told, although I wasn't convinced that I was the one that was to tell it. And I had to go through quite a bit of self-doubt and absolute terror. Uh, and a lot of people saying, you need to write this book, you can write this book, go and write the book. So I tried to write a book that I would want to read. And being a voracious reader, I, uh, I am captivated by those stories that I just can't possibly put down where there's tension and beauty and desolation and despair. And, um, and, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I want, that's what I, that's what I hope to achieve. I hope I answered your question that time. You did. (laughs) Oh, good. Good. You achieved a beautiful, beautiful, essential story. Thank you. Christian, could you speak uh, uh, to the point about you worked with a collaborator, uh, Charles Weeks, or uh, if co-author is the right term. Can you talk about that, how you would each approach the work and how you resolve? This has been a very calm, friendly panel. Tell us then how you resolved when the two of you were in disagreement on something. (laughs) How did you go back and forth when you each viewed a piece of research differently? Well, this is where Charles really um, took the lead. So he, we met years ago, I think, when I gave my, the first presentation of my book for the Mississippi Department of Arts and History, so 2010, a long time ago. And he, he sort of kept in touch. I kept in touch and he kept saying, like, you've got to write this book. I know what this is. You have to write this book. And I kept telling him, maybe, but I got to finish my book first. So he kept on and on. Eventually he said, okay, we'll do it together. I'm like, okay maybe we can do this. And then lo and behold, we actually got, you know, we got the proposal accepted and, and we took it from there. And he was the one who in many ways was like, let's, let's finish, let's do this, which was always nice to have someone to kind of keep me on track uh, on this particular work. And then the main difference really was, and I think it makes the book hopefully better is that he, by training and by interest, is an ethno-historian, so a Native American historian. He looks at the colonial period, particularly from a Native American perspective. Uh, I, by training, am a historian of uh, race and slavery, uh, African-American history. And so I look at it from that. And so we sort of figured out, tried to figure out a way to make non-white people appear in the story of Mississippi that, that may not necessarily usually get attention uh, in, in sort of Mike was pointing out, right, might not get attention uh, in the main histories of the country. And so I think we, we had sort of disagreements about almost, I mean, we're historians, we quibble, we like to quibble a lot. Um, it's what we do as a profession. Um, and so we, we quibbled about, I don't know, really anything from Hernando de Soto to and uh, the first constitution and then what to include, what not include. Usually it was very amicable, uh, but we're also uh, differently trained. You know, he's a retired uh, professional. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to survive in, in COVID times and college teaching. So like there's, there's just difference of, of a lot of things, but ultimately I think hopefully it makes the book more open to, to all readers across the, the spectrum because it's, it's a, a true sort of conglomerate of ideas. It was very rich narrative. And what you said is quite evident because you do allow in other voices and other perspectives. The reality is that uh, the story of the Gulf South was impacted by so many cultures, immigrants, visitors, that it's such a rich story that uh, I think that the panelists uh, here have told so well and made it so interesting. 
We just have a few moments left. And what I'd like to do, because I'd like each of you to have the last word, so to speak, and not to, uh, I guess we could call this a lightning round. If you wanted to have, uh, uh, maybe we'll start with Deanne. And just give us a final thought or two on what you would like someone to remember or take away after reading your book. And we'll start with Deanne. Thank you. After reading about the various seafood peoples that have continued to shape the seafood industry in today's world on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, I would hope that the perseverance and resilience of their labors is what the reader learns. We go from everything to hurricanes, um, BP oil, her, you know, Katrina that many of you all have mentioned and springboarded off. But yet, just this past Saturday, Biloxi had the Seafood Festival down on the town green. So that culture is still alive and well. And my book tells the story through the eyes of those people who created it. And that's what I'd like the takeaway to be. Well put. Mike, what are your final thoughts? Well, if I was going to have anybody take one thing away from my book, I would hope it would be that the Gulf Coast has a really compelling story and a part in America's revolutionary drama that a lot of people aren't aware of, but history didn't happen somewhere else. Uh, That history happened here. We're part of it. We're not part of it in the same way as, say, Virginia or Massachusetts, but we're a part of it. We're a player. And we were alive and well and dynamic and growing and and a a battleground and a cultural crossroads and all that in, in, in America's revolutionary era and played a little part. And I would hope people would find that intriguing and compelling that that right here on the Gulf Coast, we had a part to play. And so that's what I would hope people will take away from it. Well stated. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Tori, final thoughts from you. Yeah, I think um, what I would hope someone would take away from this book is, especially uh, as the last month has, you know, confirmed the Gulf South continues to sort of be on the front lines of climate change and global warming. And I think this rich literary history in terms of the environment sort of illuminates sort of those slow changes that, you know, it's like the, when you're the crab in the boiled water, it's hard to sort of tell as the temperature slowly changes. And I think as you read across a century of texts, we can see how our relationship has changed from sort of this idea of like, um, sort of like this loving, um, you know, passive setting in which we are sort of like observing in an awe of, to now I think we sort of see, writers engaging with it in terms of the environment is an active agent and our relationship is definitely changing with it. Tori, thank you. Uh, Chris, your final thoughts. I think most importantly that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And secondly, when disaster strikes, it's really important to take care of all the lives that are affected, quite simply. Chris, that was succinct. That you can't help but remember, George, to the point. Thank you. Christian, any final thoughts from you? What would you like the reader to take away? Or they'll take away many things, but what one thing you'd like to highlight? Mississippi's diversity, you know, no matter like how we view its history and its more sordid past, but the diversity was always there. This is not something that was broad or grew up at some kind of point in time and it was taken away. It was always there. And if you view it as such, 
um, we have a much much better opportunity to kind of adequately assess um, the state of the state and move forward. I want to take a moment and thank each of you. The past hour is a very intelligent, insightful, and enriching conversation that really focuses on the importance of the Gulf South, which I don't think has gotten enough attention. But what each of you has done, Christian, Deanne, Chris, Mike, and Tori, put the spotlight back on the Gulf South and the importance of the Gulf South by telling these wonderful stories in history of how important this region is to the, the country and to the world in our natural ecosystem. So I want to thank each of you uh, for the discussion and for, you, for your time and for the wonderful books you have written that I know our viewers will enjoy purchasing and reading. Thank you from the Mississippi Book Festival. Thank you, Scott. Thank, thank you, you so much, Scott. Yeah. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.